Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 9th, the Monday, 2023. The news, of course, broadly is very bad this morning, but there was one piece of very encouraging news, one happy story dominating the media this morning, which is that Claudia Goldin, who teaches economics at Harvard University, has won the Nobel Prize for Economics for studying women in the marketplace. It's dominating uh, the media. It's in The Post, The Times. Uh, the Guardian, and of course, the BBC. And I was thrilled for that. It's always nice to see a woman win a major prize like this. But Claudia was on the show a couple of years ago talking about her latest book on women uh, in the workplace. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to rerun the interview we did back in December 2021 with Claudia Goldin, who this morning has won the Economics Prize, uh, the Nobel Prize for Economics. So enjoy this interview. She's a delightful woman as well as a brilliant economist. Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, from a rather cloudy San Francisco on December the 21st. It's chilly and cloudy here. And extending those metaphors, I think it's rather chilly and cloudy, when, certainly when it comes to the consequences of the pandemic on our working lives, on employment in America, and particularly on female employment and unemployment. One headline I note this morning is that 35% of women who lost their jobs during the pandemic, are still unemployed. The interesting thing is whether that's out of choice uh, or uh, necessity. Um, we also hear that Build Back Better on the Hill could be a sea change. I'm not sure what a sea change could be for American women, which is probably rather depressing since Joe Manchin seems to have killed Build Back Better. Um, there is, though, according to U.S. News, uh, uh, a shrinking gender gap in workforce participation. That might mean that men are equally disempowered and unemployed as women. We will learn more in our show today. Um, an interesting piece that I picked up on a feminist website uh, about women who left the, the, the workforce, what they want in their new jobs is to be treated like human beings. Again, I don't quite know what that means and I don't know quite know how they weren't treated like human beings in our pre-pandemic age. Um, everyone acknowledges though that the pandemic poses daunting challenges to bringing women back to the workforce. That's both white and black women, but particularly perhaps uh, minority women. Uh, the news might not be entirely bad though. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had a very interesting piece um, uh, last week about how the pandemic could make the future brighter for women in the workplace. Um, the author of this suggests that there is a, a silver lining from our pandemic year. Uh, twofold, firstly, couples with young children um, might benefit. And secondly, jobs pay a lot more. The author of that interesting Wall Street Journal piece is my guest today. Uh, she is also a very distinguished economist. Her name is Claudia Goldin, and she is the author uh, of an important new book as well on women in the workplace, Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Towards Equity. She's a professor of economics at Harvard University in Cambridge, not Boston, and she's joining us from her office there. Uh, Claudia, welcome. So, oh, welcome, please, Andrew. And that that you you uh, uh, said a tremendous amount, <laughs> and there are many, too much, Claudia. Ma so many of the issues that you raised are ones that, in some recent work that I'm that I'm doing now, uh, I'm exploring. For example, uh, what are the actual facts about what has happened to women during the pandemic? They're a little bit different from 
the headlines that we read, okay? And some of it is because there's a great divide between the educated, the college graduate women and others. And the ones that suffered the most are the others, are the ones who were in sectors that just shut down the hospitality restaurant uh, and also those that are in sectors that are very exposed, such as health. But but we have lots of other things to discuss. So uh, let me just say that many of the headlines that we read uh, tilt things a little bit to be uh, extremely bad, whereas, in fact, uh, in the U.S., there's been a tremendous, remarkable recovery. And, and uh, unfortunately, we're now in a period of, uh, as one person said, uh, not Omicron, but oh my God. <laughs> well, yeah, that, well, definitely there's a bit of oh my God about Omicron. Uh, yeah. Claudia, you're a professor, as I said earlier, you're a professor of economics at Harvard, and your book is not certainly not about COVID, and it's a, it's a century long, it's a narrative, a history of women, particularly American women in the workplace, uh, this century long journey towards equity what are the key moments um, in this 100-year history, Claudia? All right. So one of the reasons that we want history, and I know that you are a historian, so you, you will appreciate history, is that uh, we're always stuck in our own moment, and we don't realize just how much progress has been made and why there has been progress. So key moments here. So I go through five distinct groups. We can think of them as birth cohorts, one graduating. First of all, they're all college graduate women in the U.S. Uh, women had, let us say, relatively substantial college graduate rates, even going back more than a century relative to other countries. And the reason that I look at college graduate men and women is because they're the ones who have the greatest chance of achieving career and I'm looking at aspirations and achievements. They certainly go beyond just career and family. One wants health, one wants uh, happiness, friendships, et cetera. But I'm looking at something that we can like have our hands on. And so I begin with the group that graduated college around 1900 to around 1919. And that group could have one or the other. They could have a job, maybe a career, or they could have a family. In that group, uh, 50% of the women who graduated college, and this, is every, this isn't just seven sisters schools, elite schools, it's everyone, 50% never had or adopted a child in their lifetime. 30% uh, never married. So this is a group that was had enormous barriers and constraints. And then we can I jump in, Claudia? Sure. Um, and this is probably a very privileged kind of thing to say, although you seem as equally privileged as me. But women from the upper or upper middle classes, why couldn't they have a career and employ a nanny or a maid to look after the kid? Yeah. Okay, first of all, let, let's be clear this is not Britain. This is America. So, well, you have most, nannies and you, you have most, nannies most and maids these, in the U.S. Most don't you? of these women are graduating from state universities. Okay. okay, so they're not necessarily upper class at all. These are not Radcliffe women or Smith. This is uh, University of Nebraska, Minnesota. Uh, it, this is all over. But yes, you're right. It's a good question, but I just wanted to make certain that everyone realized that even a hundred years ago, the median woman who was a college graduate was graduating from a state university. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, yeah, you could have, and, and they did. Um, I, I, you know, I could point to many women successful in their careers who could do it because they had uh, a nanny and yes, but it was still, <laughs> it was still a very, very difficult thing to do to 
uh, to manage, first of all, managing the household, you know, so you're, you're also a manager of a household and you have your kids, but why have the kids unless you want to spend time with them? Let's face it. So the set, so that's the first, uh, uh, chapter. What about the, the second and third yeah. chapters, Claudia, it's, in this hundred year so, history? So the other thing that I want you to think about with this first group is they're not that different from the gold misses, and I'll explain what that means, of Japan and Korea today. So women who have college degrees, who have advanced degrees in parts of Southeast Asia and in Korea and Japan uh, are often uh, unmarried. They're considered gold misses. That is a name that gets translated into Japanese and Korean and Chinese for that matter. And so it's not simply that they can't do something, but it's also that the social norms, particularly of the men who were going to marry them, are such that they want their wives to stay at home. Okay, so there are other things going on, and you were sort of hinting to that at the beginning. Okay, so now let's jump to group three, because group two is sort of a uh, a, a transitional group. And group three is graduating college from about 1946, end of World War II, to uh, the late 1960s, the tumultuous in America and the world, for that matter, 1960s. And they are, uh, in the U.S., they are the mothers of the baby boom, not the baby boom, but the mothers of the baby boom. They marry young. In fact, a college graduate woman, the median age at first marriage for that group is below 23. That's the median. <laughs> so would we, uh, I, I saw another interview you did where you, I think you might've included Ruth Bader Ginsburg as an example of this generation. Is that fair? Absolutely. Ruth Bader, Ruth Bader went to Cornell, which is where she met Marty Ginsburg. And he was a little bit older than she. So he graduated, went to law school, went to Harvard Law School. And you school. also went to Cornell, didn't you? That's right. I did. Uh, did you yeah. know uh, Ginsburg? Did I know Ginsburg? <laughs> Not when you were there. I know she was uh, older than you, but uh, ha ha have you known her over the years? I've never met her. No. Oh, okay. No. No, our parents. Yeah, but, but, but so but. she epitomizes that generation. She had what? One child, well, I think. She one doesn't, daughter. you know, some, someone of her stature can't epitomize the generation, but it's the fact that, that her history follows that of the ordinary person who graduated college in those mm. years, makes it extraordinary, makes it that this was a sort of social norm to do that. So what do I mean by that? She uh, gets married as soon as she graduates from Cornell. She goes to Harvard Law School, where Marty is as well. Then Marty graduates, and he decides to go to New York to, um, to take a job in the exciting field of tax law. <laughs> and, yeah. And she she leaves Harvard Law School and transfers to Columbia. So she is the tide follower here, you know, the way many women have been. Some this is the, the, would you call it, would it be fair to call this generation the Betty Friedan generation? I, I think it, it, it is in ways that I find interesting because um, I uh, find that the feminine mystique certainly speaks to me, but it also has many aspects that are simply wrong. <laughs> so, right. Well, you would and, probably and, agree. We uh, recently had a, a young feminist scholar, journalist, Kyla Schuler on the show, who's very critical of that generation of Friedan, and she's written a book, a, a counter history to what she calls white feminism. There, It was mostly sort of a middle to upper class white women, wasn't it? Yes, but I think the most important problem with Friedan's book, she hit a nerve because the women of that generation think even of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth goes to New York, finishes her degree, and then she has two kids. Uh, Marty is advancing in his, his career. She takes a little bit of time and takes a back seat. Of course, the back seat then becomes the front seat, but mm. let's 
that's another story. But the point about Friedan's book is that many of the women in that generation, they, they, the marriage rates are very high, birth rates are extraordinarily high, but these women had what I call their get out of jail free cards that, that's from Monopoly. And they knew, most of them, that at some point in the future, they were going to go into the workplace back to where they had been before they got married or for some of them after they got married. So what Friedan says is that this was regressive. This wasn't progressive. It was regressive that the previous generation was better than this generation Pooh, no, <laughs> the previous generation could have one or the other. This generation had them sequentially. Claudia, we had a radical young um, labor journalist, uh, Sarah Jaffe, on the show recently. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her book. It's an interesting book, Work Won't Love You Back, um, in which she's critical of essentially loveless work or meaningless work. How central was the idea of work, the activity of work to this third generation, this Friedan Ginsburg generation? Did it liberate them? Was it essential to the that that feminist mystique or or, or movement of the of the sixties? Yeah, of course, it wasn't the feminine mystique. It was the feminine mystique, which was not liberating at all. <laughs> right, I but, apologize. That's okay. Uh, the this is a group who at first went to work for something very simple, which was to support the family. And this was, you know, the 50s, the 60s, two incomes was going to uplift the family, give them a better car, give them a nicer house, a white picket fence, sent the kids to college. It was... This An apple pie. Yeah, the apple pie came before because they were baking the apple pie. Oh, <laughs> they right. weren't Maybe they bought the apple pie, apple pie yeah. now, but, rather but, than make it. But many of them then found more meaning, or at least they thought that they could find more meaning. And uh, so, in fact, I think that your point is a very, very good one, that, that uh, this is a group for which work probably didn't love them back. And their daughters, me, then in the next generation, the next group, which is group four, graduating college from around 1970 to around the 1980s or so, about 1980. Uh, and by the way, Claudia, you're part of the, th would it be fair to say that you're part of that third generation? You're a third? A no, I'm four. four. Oh, you're number four. You're on the fourth generation. Yeah. Yeah. I went to I went to graduate school. I'm four. Okay, go on. So, 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 I so you're part of this the fourth chapter of the the narrative of uh, this century long uh, journey towards equity. Right. So the so the fourth one looks back at the third one and says, "Gosh, poo, family was easy to do. It's career that was hard, and we're going to delay marriage." delay childbearing, put them off because we'll get there somehow. And we're, we're going to go to law school, medical school, get PhDs, MBAs, masters, you name it. This is what we, and that's what this generation does. No more and apple pie, right? And, and forget the apple pie, screw right. the apple pie. Uh, and they can do this because they have a new technology called the pill. Yeah. Yeah, I really like, you know, people don't think of the pill as tech. And we we're obsessed these days with the internet and connectivity. But your presentation of the pill as as, as technology and uh, triggering profound social change is a really interesting observation. Yeah, well, it's all tech. Vaccines are tech. <laughs> it's all yeah. science and tech. It's all tech. And so the story of how the pill began is a fascinating story. I can't possibly go through it. You should have someone on the show yeah. to discuss the fact that the pill had two mothers and four fathers. Yeah. And it was... It Appropriately was an, enough, given... It, it, it was. was an orphan for the longest. Nobody wanted to touch it in America. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that in a country in which our first Catholic president was JFK, that 
1960, that uh, there was such a fear on the part of big pharma to get involved in contraception. Mm. And then John Rock, one of the scientists who was a, a Catholic, had a sense that this would be approved by uh, the Vatican. And in fact, the Vatican said nothing about it until almost 1970. Right. And the reason is that it sort of mimicked, in some sense, the rhythm method. But in, in fact, uh, after Catholic women were, uh, you know, to a very, very large degree on the pill, the Pope comes out and says, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, I don't like that one either. Yeah, well, the Pope is always behind history. It's one step behind <laughs> history, Claudia. So, so this fourth generation, which would include you, they went on the pill and they, they prioritized their careers. They put off having yeah. kids and maybe... They put they off getting married, having kids. That's right. And they. So, so and, what's the fifth? So that and what year well, did this fourth chapter end? Yeah. So, um, so each of these generations is passing something along to the next, as you could tell right, in what I'm right. saying. And this generation, then, by the time they're in their forties, about twenty-seven percent of the the one of the uh, birth years in this generation, it doesn't have kids. Twenty on on average for this yeah. group, it's about 26, 27 percent. Which is pretty astonishing, isn't it? Which is pretty astonishing and sort of harkens back to this the first one that had one or the other. And so group five, and I remember my my students are, are members of group five. And I remember in the 80s when I was at the University of Pennsylvania. Some of my undergraduates said to me, uh, I'm not going to be like you. I'm going to be like you in the sense I'm going to have a career, but I'm going to have the family. And you didn't uh, have any kids, Claudia, is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm one of the, well, in fact, among women who got PhDs in my era, it's more like 35% didn't have kids. Mm. So, and among those- And, and you mentioned kids, your student, one of your, you've taught a, a number of very well-known students. Right. Perhaps your most famous one is Cheryl Sandberg. Well, she, she, I, she the, was never in my class. Oh, she, well, one, one newspaper headline suggests she was your student. That, well, that was, she was at Harvard when you were at Harvard. Is, does, does Sandberg no, she, represent this generation? My, I signed her senior thesis. Okay. okay, so you you knew Sarah. Is her lean I, forward thesis? Is this the sort of the ethos, the the manifesto of the fifth generation? Is lean in the manifesto? Yeah, uh, it's possible. I don't think I've never thought that there was one of anything. <laughs> so but is it? Does it capture the spirit in a way of of having well, everything? It it, it it captures heart. And it captures her gusto. And um, I, I certainly agree with much of, of what she says. I often say when people, students come into a classroom and there's a big table, I always say to them, take a seat at the table. You know, essentially, you're a part of this. You know, don't hide, in the, you know, in, in, in the back. And she certainly, Cheryl has never hid anywhere, has she? No, but her her whole point is take a seat at the table. But one of her main points that sometimes gets lost, and and it's something it's the advice I give to everyone is that um, the most important negotiations you can do in life is the negotiation with the person, man or woman, <laughs> that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Yeah, and so be upfront and figure out what you want as best you can. And clearly, I mean, Dave, I met Dave. When yeah, I, I knew Dave. A very he was an amazing to a person. Nice man's life. Yeah. And he was... Dave, we're talking about Dave Goldberg, who was Sheryl Sandberg's first husband, who right. tragically died a few years ago. Yeah, several years ago. And uh, Dave, Dave was, you know, Dave is the, is, is the guy that, that every... A uh, woman who wants kids and wants a career and wants love and wants affection and wants empathy 
I, one could go on and on. A part of Dave's generation, there was also Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs and a number of other <laughs> highly sort of traditional male entrepreneurs. Yeah. But not everyone is Dave Goldberg. Absolutely not. And not everyone is Cheryl Sandberg. So, I guess. so Claudia, we're going to take a break now. And then I want to come back and I want to talk about the contemporary situation, whether we've reached equity or what we need to do to get to equity. It's a fascinating conversation with uh, Claudia Golden, who is the author of Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Towards Equity, one of the America's leading um, labor economists. She teaches at Harvard and written many important books and papers. So Claudia, we'll be back in about two seconds and we'll talk about the contemporary age. Stay with us, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live. You can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Claudia Golden, one of uh, America's leading uh, labor economists and the author of an important new book, Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Through Equity. Claudia, you've made quite a splash in the UK with the book. You have this term in the book that you call greedy jobs. Uh, the Daily Mail, who tend to jump on these sorts of things, um, uh, suggests that the real reason, and they're borrowing from you, the real reason from your book that women earn less at work is um, it's greedy jobs. It's not sex discrimination, gender bias, or a glass ceiling. That's according to the male headlines. You never really trust the male. Uh, but even the independent, which is a bit fairer, suggests that your concept of greedy jobs is holding back female workers. It's a lovely term. What do you mean, Claudia, by greedy jobs? And why is it so relevant today? So what I mean by greedy jobs is something sort of simple, which is that if you work twice the number of hours, you get more per hour. Now, in many jobs, it's not just the number of hours, but which hours. So many women work very long hours, but they might not work at six at night. And we were just talking about Cheryl Sandberg, who famously would say that she was always home to have dinner with her children. And she, I know Cheryl worked very, very long hours, but she, uh, you know, so uh, a greedy, and it's probably the case, she, she also had a greedy job, but by well, she had the greediest job of all. I mean, she was, <laughs> or she still does. I mean, she's running one of the largest and most controversial yeah. companies well, in the world. Well, her, her kids uh, go out and buy their own dinner now. Um, but by, by and large, what I mean by it is that if you work more hours, you get a disproportionate more, or if you work 
particular hours, uh, you know, if, if rush hours, for example, if if when you're told to jump, you jump, you get a lot more. So are you suggesting that uh, in this sort of concept of greedy jobs, which, as I said, the Mail and the Independent and the Financial and the London Times, they've all jumped on. Um, are you suggesting women should or, or men should be less greedy in their labor? I mean, are we uh, are we supposed to be sharing our jobs more aggressively, more selflessly? Well, so so the, the question is, what is one of the goals that so the the book has the word equity in it and so right. the notion is that uh one has couples they could be same-sex couples or heterosexual couples let's think about a heterosexual couple first and they have children and it's really the children and other care responsibilities that lead to uh an issue that I would call couple inequity and couple inequity then produces gender inequality. So one simple way of putting it is that when couple inequity uh, is embraced rather than when you like jettison couple equity, you throw gender inequality, uh, you throw gender equality under the bus and produce gender inequality. So Cla- let's Cla- Claudia, do you think that we, we had a, a, a woman called uh, Minal Bopai on the show who wrote, who's written an interesting book on equity as the foundation for group success. Do you think that one, one criteria for the success of an early 21st century marriage is labor equity? And by labor equity, you mean we do the same thing? Well, less greedy jobs so that both the male and the female share both their perhaps domestic and professional labor existence. So so let's go back and follow the logic here. Why is greedy work at odds with couple equity? So if we think about a couple considering, you know, they both have... uh, advanced degrees, let's say a law degree, they both have law degrees and they go out and they take jobs at, at law firms and they take jobs at, at law firms that are large, that have demanding clients and they're both doing very well. They're making, let us not even talk about how much they're making. <laughs> it's <Right. laughs> obscene amounts. Too much. And, and then they have kids and they realize that they both can't have the greedy job. Well, they have a choice. They have two choices. They could both go from this large, uh, high-paying firm to a smaller firm, which gives them more flexibility and that it it doesn't tax them as much in some sense for the absence of the greediness of the job. And they could both do that or one can stay with the greedy job and one can go to the flexible, but they cannot both be at the, this is where we started the conversation because you might say, oh, well, now they have enough. They could go hire 20 nannies. Well, sure, they could hire 20 nannies, but they would like to spend time with their kids. And there always has to be a manager in the, in the household. It's interesting, Claire. We had, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Emily Oster. Uh, Emily Oster was my student. Oh, my God. You, everyone important has come through your classroom. Well, anyway. I should say Emily Oster was one of our students here. She was also our undergraduate. Right. So anyway, she was on the show uh, earlier in the year. And basically, she was comparing running a family with running a corporation. Yeah. You're suggesting that you can't do that, that families no, no, aren't no, corporations. No, 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 she... <laughs> Go back and ask. I know Emily very, very well. Emily is, runs her family, she and Jesse, as a corporation, as their little firm. But she's there. She's the one. The buck stops with those two parents. Okay? They don't have a nanny living with them. What about for people who, who haven't had the good fortune or perhaps the misfortune to be at Harvard the Sheryl Sandbergs, the Emily Osters, who the, the kind of women who were featured in Jessica Bruder's book, Nomadland, Jessica was on the show. Here's an image of the kind of women now who are part of this precariat. 
What about the the lower end of the labor force? Uh, we, we seem to be losing a middle class. I mean, it's all very well talking about Sheryl Sandberg and Emily Oster, but they're exceptional. Is there right. still a middle class female workforce, so, or have they all okay, falling into so, the precariat? Yeah. So now we're leaving the world that we were talking about, and we're asking questions about individuals who don't have college degrees. They may right. have done some college. You know, a very, very large fraction of Americans who are below the age of 40 have done some college, but, you know, don't have college degrees. And uh, so there are those at the, I, I'm not quite certain what this picture is showing me, but it doesn't look Well, good. it's a picture of, of, of the nomadic nature of labor uh, in America, yeah, where people but, go but, from but job most, to job. Did you see Nomadland? No, most people are not in this nomadic world. And right. so, so there, are, there are many different worlds that we can focus on. Of course, my book focuses on one particular world. That book focuses on another. But the majority of the women who are uh, not college graduates, you know, that they're, they're not nomads. They're they're most of them are in stable relationships. Obviously, some are not, uh, and they are, you know, they are eking out um, a, a living. And so, uh, the, the, you're absolutely right that there's a tremendous amount of work in labor economics that shows that we've had a hollowing out of the occupations so that technological change has led to uh, fewer occupations or lower wage in the middle. The very lowest occupations are still around. I always say that, you know, someone produces my computer there at the upper end of the occupations and someone dusts my computer there at the lower end. And in between, we've sort of had a hollowing out that that is certainly um, the case. And it's not just the case in the U.S., it's in the case uh, worldwide. And, and that's, that's, what, that's what labor economists more and more are studying. It's this sort of bifurcation of, of, of jobs. Claudia, uh, you mentioned um, tech and, and the pill and the role of the pill in liberating women, um, allowing them in, the, in your stage four and five. I'm curious as to the role of the internet. We had, um, and of digital technology, we had Tiffany Schlein on, friend of mine, local Bay Area feminist thinker. She has a new book out, 24-6, which is about giving up the screen for a day. We also had the very distinguished feminist writer, Jeanette Winterson on the show as a new book out about AI. What's your sense of the impact of the internet on women at work and is AI the problem or another fix for stage six in your chapter six in your in your in your narrative so so I'm, I'm glad that you're that you asked me a question that I can correct something Good. from about I don't know seven minutes before group five looking back at group four essentially said to them, you forgot to have the kids. And just as group four was given this technology that allowed them to sort of fly, you remember fear of flying, they were flying. Uh, group five, uh, so group four uh, latched onto a technology so that they had contraception. Group five, on the other hand, was at some point was given greater ability to conceive. And so, in fact, in group five, even though they have uh, uh, delayed marriage and delayed first birth, even more than group four, they've actually, before the pandemic, women who were uh, about 45 years old in that group their birth rates were considerably higher than the previous group. And, and, and much of that, about half of that, is due to 
advances in assisted reproductive technology. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, it's, so, it's, so, so what about AI? How is this going to play know, out? Of, of course, AI in this other world means artificial insemination. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I apologize. So artificial intelligence as opposed to artificial <laughs> insemination. How, how yeah. do you expect our robotic world? We had, uh, do you know Cheryl Turk, uh, Sherry Turkle? Yeah, I, I don't know her. But I she, she teaches down the road at MIT, and yeah, she's been on my show in, in several the, times. The, she's an old friend, tech. and she sees yeah. robots as a threat, particularly to well, our humanity. I mean, How do you take the robotic economy in terms of career and family and female emancipation? Yeah. So, first of all, there's a difference between robots and art, uh, artificial intelligence, and they they sort of come together, but they're also different. This is certainly not an area that I know a tremendous amount about, so I don't want to go off and say something that that I don't feel that I am uh, expert on. Uh, I I cannot tell you (laughs) in any definitive way, I can't answer the question how uh, AI is going to impact women relative to men and whether the notion of greedy jobs is affected by AI and how it's affected by it. I don't know. There are, there are every technology in the history and written history, and you know this, every technology has winners and losers. And it's always hard to predict exactly who the winners are going to be and who are the losers and what's going to happen to the losers. So I don't know. Well said. It's always nice to get a Harvard professor to admit they don't know. Um, you mentioned Ruth uh, Ginsburg, uh, Bader Ginsburg earlier. I had Linda Greenhouse, the New York Times legal writer on the show. Um, she has a new book out on the Supreme Court, and she spoke about comparing Ginsburg and Amy Coney Barrett. This woman seems to have everything. She has about eight children. Seven. She's, seven. Apologies. Nearly, right? Seven children. Uh, She has a seat on the Supreme Court. Is Barrett perhaps uh, the canary in the coal mine? Is she suggesting the future of a very different kind of upper-class female worker in the 21st century? Uh, In the U.S., there are, you know, conservatives who look to Amy Coney Barrett as being, you know, uh, an indication that uh, you don't have to have abortion, for example, you can get ahead and have all these kids, of course, some, um, uh, uh, to her enormous credit, uh, were adopted and have special needs. Um, She is obviously someone who has uh, an amazing ability to focus on these difficult cases, and uh, and also be with her uh, with her with her family, but most of the <laughs> of the individuals who look to her as being uh, as as being an important statement are making a very very different statement. There, the statement that they're making, and it's uh, it's it's all over the web, <laughs> is that. Um, is that many women, according to uh, this group, many women don't want a career and, uh, and they, they want, uh, they want to be at home. I mean, one of the very interesting examples that's decades before Amy Coney Barrett is Phyllis Schlafly. Okay. What is the story of Phyllis? The story of Phyllis Schlafly was that she rose up as an anti-feminist, as against women entering the labor market, as against the notion that women are content and happy only if they have both career and family, or at least if they have career. And what is her personal story? Her personal story was that she was brilliant, she made a big splash in writing uh, a, a book, and then she decided that she needed to go back to school. So over 
uh, her husband's disapproval of this. <laughs> Interestingly, she did exactly what she's telling women not to do. She went to law school and she got a law degree and she went out and she had a career and she had a career uh, in some amazing way. Her career was built on preventing other women from having careers. Irony of ironies. Uh, finally, Claudia, this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I mentioned um, Sarah Jaffe's book. She relies on the feminist philosopher philosophy of Silvia Federici about sort of reincorporating the idea of love into society and into, into work. Also had uh, Avi Chomsky, uh, uh, Noam Chomsky's daughter on the show recently talking about climate justice. Is it possible that in the early part or the mid part of the 21st century, that we might have a more radicalized feminist ideology addressing climate change, work itself, coming out of the upper class, or are we just going to get more Sheryl Sandbergs? <laughs> I don't know where to take that. Well, I mean, Sheryl Sandberg, sort of money-making machines who are focused on economics rather than meaning or improving the world. I mean, I'm probably not being very kind to Sheryl Sandberg, but the, nobody is these days. Um, well, I, I think they may not be kind to her because they're, they're, they're saying that Zuckerberg is responsible for everything. I mean, what is she, tuna fish? So... Um, <laughs> That that's the takeaway. Uh, that's the takeaway. Yes, but, uh, but, but uh, I, I Claudia, think that this, uh, interview. Um, uh, what are you? Uh, so on on uh, Cheryl Sandberg. What is she? Tuna fish. Anyway, go on. No, she's not tuna fish at all. No, I, I in 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 all the issues that you just bundled together, a love, um, empathy, thinking about the future. Uh, women have traditionally been ahead of that. And we can go through lots of different reasons why uh, this is the case. So um, I would hope, and and I never predict the future. Uh, I leave that up to, to my psychic. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's uh, Sherry Turkle's role down the road yeah. at MIT. But, but, but I do think that, that if, if women... Uh, have an inherent advantage it would be in all three of these areas well it's great stuff from claudia golden the author of career and family women's century long journey towards equity claudia wonderful interview thank you so much and thank appearing. you Andrew. um people need to read your book if they care about women in the workplace and understanding the last century uh you're talking to me from your office in cambridge at harvard what else should people be reading in these strange COVID-infested times in late yeah. December 2021? Well, I'm very fortunate because my, my husband is an avid reader. And I said to him the other day when I was unhappy about a book I was reading, although I was reading The Book of Eels, and I very much liked that, but then I put it down because I got sick of eels. Eels are sort of... What is The Book of Eels? Oh, The Book of... You, you have to just read it. I can't explain it. It's all about eels. But it's written by an individual who is responsible for some of the very, very best covers of books. So now you really have to look this whole thing up. But let, let me say that my husband said to me, why don't you read Hamnet? And I thought, why, why would I want to read Hamnet? And I started reading it. Maggie O'Farrell hmm. is a, a brilliant author. I usually I read at night and I go to sleep with my iPad in the bed. Uh, and um, I can't fall asleep with this book. It is, it moves fast. So what is the what 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 is it all about? Is all about uh, Shakespeare's wife, although you never know that she's married to Shakespeare, and she's an extraordinary human being. Of course, we don't know very much about Shakespeare's wife. So Maggie O'Farrell is mm. making this up but she's making it up in a way that's rooted in whatever history we have. But all we know is that this wonderful, amazing woman named Agnes is married to this, gets married when she's pregnant to this 18-year-old Latin tutor. 
We don't know very much about him, but he's saying nothing. <laughs> and you keep on saying, you're Shakespeare. <laughs> but yeah. read it. It's, it's fast moving. It's deep. It's interesting. It's in the time of the bubonic plague. Uh, and of course, Hamnet dies of the bubonic plague. Uh, that everybody knows. But everything else is is brilliantly told. Thanks. Well, Claudia, uh, Claudia Golden, uh, you're not the first or the last person to suggest that book. I actually need to get her on the show. Real honor to have you on. Uh, as I said, uh, your new book, Career and Family, Women's Century Long Journey Towards Equity is just out. It's an important new book. Uh, congratulations on the book. Keep well. And we'll have you back on the show to talk more about Cheryl, Sandbridge, Cheryl Sandberg and Tuna Fish. Thank you so much, Claudia Golden. Okay, thank you, Andrew. A lot of fun. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.